Well, thank you, musicians. What an ama- what amazing couple of promises those are. Surely goodness and mercy will follow me all the days of my life. Not only that, we get to live in the house of the Lord forever. If you serve the living God, you know Christ is your Savior, then that's your promise. Those are your promises today. Well, as we open up God's Word today to John chapter 13, we are going to be commanded to do something you absolutely cannot do. Unless you know the Lord Jesus Christ as your personal Savior. But I would, want, I would quickly say that you won't be able to do it very well, or maybe you're, not, maybe you're struggling, maybe you're not accomplishing the command that we are going to share this morning, because it requires of you being submissive to the Holy Spirit of God in your life. It requires of you to be filled with the Spirit of God. If you're wrestling and struggling with this that we're going to deal with today, uh, you need look no further than the mirror of your heart and say, what's going on in my heart? So John 13 is our text. Let's open in prayer. Father, we pray this morning that while this command is absolutely impossible by our own strength, it is expected to those who love you, who are called according to your purpose in Christ Jesus. So, Father, I pray that you would teach us from your word today and open up our hearts and help us to examine, uh, to stand before the mirror of your word, Lord, and, and lay bare our life before ourselves, because we know it's laid bare before you, to lay bare our life before ourselves and ask the hard questions of ourselves. Are we living in the way that Christ has commanded us? Is Christ's love being formed in us, transforming us, that we might love one another? So, Lord, thank you for the promises you've given to us. Thank you that you have given us your Holy Spirit to indwell us and empower us and enable us to do the very things that you've called us to do. I pray now that we would be submissive to your call in our life today and and see not only our lives transformed, but the world transformed around us. In the name of Christ, I pray. Amen. Well, there's a lot of... um, a lot of misinformation in our world today with respect to the doctrine of the love of God. In fact... Donald A. Carson has written a small but outstanding book that I recommend that all of you get a hold of and read, and he entitles it, The Difficult Doctrine of the Love of God. Now, most of us would would look at that title and say, "That's that's a very strange title, but there couldn't be a better description of the plight and struggle of the human of the follower of Christ than a title like The Difficult Doctrine of the Love of God. And I want to share with you this morning from John chapter 13, which is, of course, contextually, the, the last uh, chapters of, of John are, are um, the last, basically the last will and testament of Jesus before he left this earth, whereby he tells us, his disciples, how much he loves us. In fact, the whole section there is to describe the the great love of God. And and, and people have uh, so abused the the idea of the love of God in our culture. 
regularly, people will excuse their behavior by saying, oh, it's fine. The God I, I know or I've heard of is a loving God, so it'll all be okay. And so the love of God has become sort of a subjective catch-all for God is permissive, God is okay with everything because God is loving and he's a, a gooey God who loves and, 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 and it'll be fine. And that, of course, is the description that has been around us for quite some time. But it would seem recently, with almost the stroke of a pen, the uh, former term, God is love, has been replaced. God has been replaced with the word love. Now we live among a culture that has taken God out of the equation and has defined love as love is love which is even further away from the real definition of love, but is designed, of course, to excuse anything, because it really doesn't mean anything other than what I'm saying by that is any expression that I decide is love is love, regardless of what anybody thinks, and in particular, regardless of what God thinks. Now, let's, be, let's understand one thing from the get-go. Love was invented by God. Uh, not by people, not by humans, not by how we interact with each other. The definition that the Bible gives, of, gives, uh, gives, gives us is God is love. If we're going to understand how to define love, we have to understand that God is love, and we have to understand and define and identify love on the basis of who God is and how He loves us. That's why Jesus, when He was giving His farewell uh, discourse to His disciples, said, here's what I'm going to tell here. I want to tell you this. I'm giving you a new command. That you are to love one another. And then he puts boundaries on it or identifies it or makes certain that we all know what that means by, by saying, just as I have loved you, so you love one another. In other words, you can't know or demonstrate or, or activate in your life Love, unless you actually understand what love really means on the basis of how Jesus identifies love, on the basis of who Jesus is. So as we launch into this text this morning in John 13, um, within this love is love culture, the doctrine of the love of God is, has, and has become a subjective catch-all for whoever it wants God to be. I was horrified not long ago to um, read on Facebook a post that was put on by an evangelical pastor, and it was one line, what if love is love? And I, I just about lost it when I read that. How can you be an evangelical pastor and write that? What if love is love? Jesus has defined it very clearly for us here and talks and commands us to love one another which, by the way, is also a favored verse of those who want to subjectively choose willy-nilly love however they want. Well, we're called to love one another. Yes, but it's absolutely put within the parameters of as I have loved you. So within this present context that we're looking at today, it's really acutely necessary uh, to biblically define the love of God in order to fully understand the qualifier that Jesus has placed on loving one another 
as I have loved you. For certain, I can tell you that love is not necessarily love, at least as God represents it. So I'm gonna, what I'm going to do today is, is I'm, I'm going to launch uh, towards this new command that's later on in chapter 13 by reading a section on Jesus washing the disciples' feet. And then I want to, to uh, pretty much center the sermon this morning on, uh, Gen- uh, on um, John 13, 31 uh, to 38. That's where we're going to land this morning. But let's, let's read God's word together. It was just before the Passover feast. Jesus knew that the time had come for him to leave this world and go to the Father. Having loved his own who were in the world, he now showed them the full extent of his love, or loved them to the very last, or loved them to the extreme, the, the, the max, which, by the way, is not the foot washing. It goes beyond that. He's previewing in the foot washing the extent of his love that he's about to demonstrate. Now, the evening meal was being served, and the devil had already prompted Judas Iscariot, son of Simon, to betray Jesus. Jesus knew that the Father had put all things under his power, and that he had come from God and was returning to God. In other words, Jesus knew exactly who he was, he was not confused by his identity knew he was the very God himself. So he got up from the meal, took, out his outer, took off his outer clothing, and wrapped a towel around his waist. After that, he poured water into a basin and began to wash his disciples' feet, drying them with the towel that was wrapped around him. He came to Simon Peter, who said to him, Lord, are you going to wash my feet? Jesus replied, You do not realize now what I am doing, but later you will understand. No, said Peter, you shall never wash my feet. Jesus answered, unless I wash you, you have no part with me. Then, Lord, Simon replied, not just my feet, but my hands and my head as well. Jesus answered, a person who has had a bath needs only to wash his feet. His whole body is clean, and you are clean, though not every one of you. For he knew who was going to betray him And that was why he said not everyone was clean. Let me just pause for a moment and say, Jesus here throws the whole event of foot washing into our spiritual condition. This was a a prequel to what Christ was going to do to make it possible for our sins to be washed away. And for us to keep a close account with the Lord in the future and, and, and continually have the cleansing of the Lord and experience of that. When he had finished washing their feet, he put on his clothes and returned to his place. Do you understand what I have done for you? And the answer is, of course they did not. Not in full anyway. You call me teacher and Lord, and rightly so, for that is what I am. Now that I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also should wash one another's feet. I have set you an example that you should do as I have done for you. I tell you the truth, no servant is, is greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. Now that you know these things, you will be blessed if you do them. And we can't stop there because this is, a, this is absolutely in context a flow of a conversation that Jesus was having. He didn't stop there and 
they went out and, 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 and had a meal. No, he continued on. And then he talks about the betrayal of Judas that's going to take place. And he continues to, to uh, speak to them in verse 31. After Judas leaves their gathering, says this, When he was gone, when he, Judas, was gone, Jesus said, Now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will glorify the Son in himself and will glorify him at once. My children, I will with you only a little longer. You will look for me, and just as I told the Jews, so I tell you now. Where I am going, you cannot come. Now we learn that Peter stopped listening once he heard that and started thinking, which was a problem. But we'll get on to that. A new command I give you, love one another as I have loved you, so you must love one another by this, beloved. By this. You're wondering about our brand? The supreme identifier? By this. All men will know that you are my disciples. If you love one another. Whenever someone records their last sayings, they're generally pretty significant. And here we have in this opening scene of the final discourse with his disciples, um, Jesus basically bringing the whole subject of his final discourse around the idea of his lavish love for us. There's a, a number of scenes going on here that set the mood for us. This is, um, this foot washing, you know, putting it into cultural context, we need to remember that this was a very normal uh, event in a culture that these individuals were part of. They're all walking around on dusty roads with sandals and bare feet. It was customary to come into a house and, and uh, you know, the rest of your body was clean, but your feet were dirty. And so, before you would sit down to eat, uh, generally, there was a foot washing that took place. The, there was a servant in the house that would come and wash the guest's feet. In this case, there was... Twelve disciples and Jesus, and apparently no servants, because none of the boys popped up to wash feet. They're just all looking around at their dirty feet. And Jesus stands up and grabs a basin of water and the towel that the servant would grab and proceeds to wash the feet of the disciples. It's important for us not to view this as some sort of nostalgic event or or even some sort of surface cultural custom. Or, or necessarily that this particular act should be continued and carried on into our culture. It's completely bizarre and 
unknown to our culture. We, we don't go to houses and wash our feet. It's not what we do. It's not how you demonstrate in our culture a, a service a attitude or a servant approach. What was this all about? Why was Jesus doing this? Well, throughout all of the scripture, we find that God is constantly picturing spiritual truths with physical events. And this is another one of them. This is an important physical event whereby Jesus is portraying and picturing the ultimate act of love that is about to be shown to them. That's why it says in the text that he was about to show them the full extent of his love. It says, now he, he now showed them the full extent of his love. It doesn't stop at foot washing. It, it moves through to the crucifixion, to the cross. We need to understand that it says here the time had come. Jesus knew that it was his time to give his life for you and me and them. We learned that some months ago when we happened to preach on the text in John 12. In John 12, 23, it says Jesus knew that the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. How did he know? We discovered in the text there that Gentiles started to come to Jesus and ask him about this message of salvation. That was the redemptive clock, a redemptive alarm clock for Jesus. It had been established in heaven before the foundation of the world. And so Jesus knows that it's now time. And as he cradles the feet of the disciples in his hands, he begins to wash them. This is not the usual moment of washing that went on as a routine, but, but rather this was a highly charged emotional moment of intense love that was being unfolded for the disciples, beginning with this act of submission and servanthood, where Jesus takes on the menial task of washing the feet of the disciples to teach them a powerful message. And so he removes his outer garment and ties a towel around his waist and, and takes this basin and, and, and takes Andrew's feet in his hands. The backdrop is belief and unbelief, stubborn unbelief, of betrayal and, and denial and, and all that was going to transpire. Jesus wasn't just thinking about the dirt on their feet as we learn here. He's, he's thinking about the dirt in their hearts and the, the, the powerful cost of, of making them clean in their hearts. He's taking their feet and gently washing them with water and removing. He is thinking about the great cost that is about to take place to demonstrate his intense and deep love for them. That he was going to leave them and that they had no idea what was going to happen. They had no idea of the intense event that was about to fall on them. His heart was broken for them as he softly rubbed their feet, cleaning them of dirt. Oh, if they only knew. Just like the message to Jerusalem, 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 if you only knew this hour of visitation. Guys, if you only knew. 
what is about to transpire. As he was looking at their feet, imagining each one of them and how much he loved them and how much they were going to endure of pain and sorrow and suffering and sickness and insult and persecution for his namesake. This wasn't about the mundane of washing dusty feet. Oh, what a servant Jesus is. No. This is the Lord of glory and salvation and creation, their creator, your creator and mine, holding our feet and washing them. Picturing their naivety, picturing their eager love, picturing their weak flesh, picturing their, their cut and run in a few hours away from him, picturing their death. As he wept for Lazarus, I'm sure in his heart he was weeping for them. Simon, Peter, if you only knew what I was really doing here. Mixture of grief and joy and sorrow and victory and gory and glory. I'm going to steal death away from you guys forever. If you don't get it right now, how much I'm willing to pay for that. says in the text that he was troubled deeply in his heart. Because Judas, who had walked with him, who, by the way, you know, as he went and washed Andrew's feet and then Matthew's feet and then Thaddeus and Philip and then, yes, Judas, holding Judas' feet in his hands, washing them, the same loving care as all the others, saying, oh, Judas, how is it you are going to forfeit the love of Christ for a few pieces of silver? And as he was washing Judas' feet, he was washing the feet of so much of our world they would rather express their love of money than experience the love of Christ. Peter denies him. Oh, Peter, you stubborn worldling, if you only knew. I'm going to talk about him in a few moments. Jesus gives this new command, verse 34, love one another as I have loved you. Jesus gives a new commandment. It's the brand that distinguishes us 
as true disciples. It's our brand. It's the one he gave to us. It's the one he left to us. He never left anything else that said, this is how you will be identified to the world. He never gave us anything else, just this. This is the defining mark. So this morning, I want to look at four insights from just this section in 31, 38 to 38. Because we need to answer the question this morning, how do we love each other like this? And the only way we can answer the question is to get a full sense of how Jesus has loved us. And that's what he said. You, you can't know this, you won't do this, unless you know and experience how I've loved you. So he, he begins in verse 31 by telling them or answering the question for them, how I will love you. How will I love you? He says here, when, I, when, he, when Judas was gone, and now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will glorify the Son in himself and will glorify him at once. The, now, the key word is now. Moving into this, the whole climax of this event that moves through these chapters is the cross. When God chose in eternity past to reveal his supreme act of love for mankind, he chose the cross. He chose this to define what it means to really love. He chose the sacrificial death of Jesus Christ for each one of us. So it stands to reason then that if God has declared that the supreme public demonstration of his glory is the act of sacrifice by Jesus Christ, then truly our identification with Christ is only accurate as we love one another sacrificially the way Christ has loved us. When God chose to have the Son put the supreme demonstration of His glory on public display, He chose the cross. That's why the Apostle Paul could say, I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for the salvation of those who believe in Jesus Christ. I'm not ashamed of that. It's the ultimate act and demonstration of God's love. It's the ultimate supreme demonstration of God's glory. Jesus put God's glory on display by dying for us. How much? How does God love us? How is God love? At an unthinkable cost. The living God assigned the Son to be the sacrifice for our rejection, for our wickedness, for our violence, for our hate. When Jesus was holding the feet of his disciples in his hands, 
we all have to remember or recognize theologically that Jesus planned to die for these men while they were still sinners. He planned to die for us while we were still sinners. The Bible says, while Christ loved us, while we were sinners, Christ died for us. Think back to the the days and months before you came to know Christ. Christ knew you then. Christ purposed in eternity past to love you then, to love you into the kingdom of God. While you were unlovely and unlovable and unfaithful, Christ died for you. Before any of these disciples had ever thought of following Christ, Christ had already planned to die for them. The supreme act, public display of Christ's love. It's not a gooey love. It's not a permissive love. It's not a sentimental love. This is a a soul-saving, suffering love of unthinkable proportions. How, he then answers a question, how I will love you when I'm gone. Because he says to them, my children, I'll be with you only a little longer. You will look for me, and just as I told the Jews, so I tell you now, where I'm going, you cannot come. And remember, that's all Peter heard. Maybe that's all, some, maybe that's all the rest of them heard at the time. I don't know. But here's what, here's what Jesus went on to teach them in through chapter 14. You can't come where I'm going, but but I'm going to prepare a place for you in 14 verse 2. That where I am there you may be with me also. He goes on to tell them in in 14, 17 that that I'm leaving, but I'm never going to leave you or forsake you. You are my children, the warmest of intimate language. I won't leave you as orphans. I will come to you in in the presence of the Holy Spirit. My love ongoing love for you as I come to you and live in you will not be dependent upon your faithfulness. It won't be dependent upon your lovability. It won't be dependent upon your loveliness. It will be dependent upon my love for you. When Jesus is calling us to love one another as he loved us, It's the same thing. It's not dependent on our faithfulness to one another. It's not dependent upon our lovability to one another. It's not dependent upon our loveliness. It's it's not conditional. We love each other because we love him. And he first loved us and therefore we love one another in him. So he says, I'm preparing a place for you. And then also he says in 1419 that because I live, you will live also. You won't die for your sins. Because I live, you will also live. I'm preparing a place for you. And because I live, you will live. And I'm giving you the Holy Spirit to enable this to happen to you, to make all this possible for you. And then he goes on in verse 34 and 35 to say, now, how are you to love each other? You to love each other based on the same way I have loved you. And until I come and get you to take you to the place that I'm preparing for you, in the meantime, I'm assigning all of you to put my glory on public display. And the supreme act 
of putting the glory of Jesus on display is none other than how we love one another. How much we love our brothers and sisters in Christ. That's the supreme demonstration of the glory of God on this earth today. Through, our, through his suffering, he died for us. Through our sacrifice for one another, we demonstrate his glory on earth. Now, by the way, when he said to them, love one another, it, you know, he says a new command. Well, what, in what way is it new? Was this something they'd, uh, they'd never heard before? I mean, I'm sure at the moment he said that, maybe Peter thought in his head, I've heard the rabbis say that all the time. Yada, yada, yada. That's right out of Leviticus. I know that. Leviticus says, Leviticus 19.18 says, Do not seek revenge or bear a grudge against one of your people. Are you listening? Beloved? Followers of Jesus? Called? Commanded? But love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. This is not new to them. What's new about it? Jesus was opening up a whole new realm of understanding about the theological reality of salvation, redemption, and transformation, and changing people's lives. It, there's, it's new in three ways, at least. It's new in measure, it's new in power, and it's new in purpose. New in measure. Think about this. This concept of love didn't come to pass because people were made. Love predates humans. The Godhead, the Trinity, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, eternally existent in the context of love, one with the other. It, perfect love. Love that was now going to be brought into the human heart through the work of Jesus Christ. In order for this to happen... In eternity past, planned and purposed, God the Father calls out in the Trinity for acceptance of the plan of redemption that was going to require some significant adjust, adjustments to take place emotionally within the Godhead at Calvary. The Son of God accepts the responsibility and the assignment. And thereby, we who now know, looking back in history of the cross, know that at Calvary, the crucifixion and the moment of crucifixion where Jesus Christ bore our sins, pierced a dart through the heart of the Godhead and the relationship between the Father and the Son. It was at Calvary that the love of the Godhead itself was jeopardized as the Father turned away from the Son and Jesus cried out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Who was he calling out to? He was calling out to his Father who had loved him with holy, eternal love. And now was turning his back on him because he took upon himself our sin. And the son experienced the abandonment for that moment of 
of his heavenly Father for us. This act of love is no small thing. The measure of this love is cosmic in proportion. Not only is it new in measure, but it's new in power. The Holy Spirit is, is moved into us. How will this be a new, new command? Guys, I'm going to give you, he tells it later on in the chapter 14, I'm giving you the Spirit. It's going to be in you, empowering you, energizing you to do the impossible, which is to love the unlovely, to love the unlovable, to forgive those who've hurt you, to not be easily offended, to not share your offense with other people and get them all disheartened. To not seek revenge, to not bear a grudge, cross love. Father, forgive them for they know not what they're doing. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. The whole litany of things that was going on while he loved us to the max. This is supernatural love. And this love is formed in us. This love is an expression of all that God is. God's love includes his mercy, includes his compassion, includes his grace, includes his patience and forgiveness, includes his holiness, includes his wrath. All of it. You don't get to piecemeal things. When it says God is love, and you subjectivize it, it loses all of its steam, it loses all of its meaning, it loses all of its identity for us. We embrace it all. All of God's love is forming in us, and that's the new purpose that has been given to us, new government in our lives, over our emotions. The principle of the kingdom of Christ is that those people in Jesus' kingdom really, really love each other. And it is palpable, it is, it is noticed, it is longed for, it is, people are jealous for it. That's what he's calling us to do here. Our brand, how we put God's glory on display. Husbands and wives and friends and brothers and sisters in churches. Christians wrangling and tangling with each other is, is the opposite it dishonors God. It, it's the opposite of his glory. Not forgiving someone is the opposite of Jesus' glory. Being offended easily is the opposite of Jesus' glory. Seeking revenge is the opposite of Jesus' glory. Hurting each other, offending, insulting each other is the opposite of Jesus' glory. Not loving because you're not lovable today is the opposite of Jesus' glory. I'm regularly not very lovable I'm thankful for God's people who love me anyway. I'm regularly not very lovely. In fact, that's probably not a description I'd ever use for myself. I'm glad that people love me anyway. I need forgiveness. And it's so strengthening and heartening when one of your brothers or sisters forgives you. That's what it means to be a Christian, a disciple of Jesus. I love what 
Donald A. Carson wrote in his book when he said, right believing, right understanding, right teaching, right attention to many righteous things without full attention to this command is so much humbug. I wish I could say it like Carson. Let me wrap this up with Peter here, you know. Peter's just like us. Well, I'll speak for myself. Peter's like me. Impetuous. Emotional. Jumps all over everything. What, you're leaving? Well, I'll tell you right now. I want to come. Why can't I come where you're going? And not only that, I'm going to lay down my life for you. Jesus is like, Peter, seriously. Before that weird feathered thing crows in the morning you will have denied me three times not to mention all the other guys are going to cut and run too because you're not ready for this kind of love not ready you're not ready yet to love me more than you love yourself you think you are but you're not And in the absence of Christ doing a powerful work in our lives, we will be like Peter every time. We will blow by this supreme command on the weight of things that matter to us more. For Peter, it was, my friend is going away and I want to go with him. Peter, this is far more important and profound than that. I want you to stay here. And I want all of you guys, in my absence... To demonstrate the glory of Jesus Christ in your lives until I come back and get you. I don't want to take any chances that before I leave, you don't know how to prevent a church split. You're called to love each other. And the greatest irony of all in this whole text is that Jesus looks at Peter and says, Peter, you're going to lay your life down for me? It's just the opposite. I'm about to lay down my life for you so that you'll be able to lay down your life for me. Peter, right now, why don't you just get good at being something instead of the false bravado of doing something? There's a real danger, beloved, in making the meaning of the cross about salvation for me and stopping there and forgetting that it's about reshaping everything about us, reshaping every attitude I have concerning how I'm loved and empowered to love. It doesn't make any sense at all to embrace the salvation of Jesus and miss out in the love of Jesus right now that enables you, empowers you to do the unnatural. Love each other this way. Father, I pray this morning with a great desire in my own heart that I might reach new levels in my own life of meaning in terms of enacting this kind of love for my brothers and sisters. 
Lord, you have made it abundantly clear to us that when Jesus told the guys to love each other because he was leaving, it was the point he was making is if you can't love each other who you've seen, how are you going to be able to love me once I'm gone and I'm not seen? And we realize, Lord, in the scriptures, you, you press that on us. If we can't love our brothers and sisters who are reflecting the glory of Christ who we see, how in the world are we going to reflect the glory of God who we do not see? And I just pray, O oh Father, that you would press on our hearts this morning this new level of discipleship which is our brand, it is our identification. We are empowered to be fully devoted disciples of Christ who love each other as Christ has loved us. Thank you, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. As a father and now a grandfather, I think often about the future of my children, the future of my grandchildren. I think of the times bathing them as a little baby and thinking, what, what hard things are you going to have to endure? I'm frankly glad that God has never given us an insight into what's ahead. I don't know how you can endure the emotion of that, to be honest. But when our Savior took Peter's feet or any of the disciples' feet in his hands. He saw the beginning right through to the end. I can't help but think as he was holding Peter's feet in particular and thinking of his bravado and all that he was going to say, you know, I'll lay down my life for you. I can't, I, I can't think that the only liquid was on his feet. I think that Jesus' eyes missed it up he thought about the day that Peter would lay down his life for Jesus, the cause of Christ, and that he was holding in his hand feet that would be battered and bruised and crucified, and how much he loved him. And there he holds our feet in his hands as well, and he sees the hurt and the pain and the insults and our failing bodies are ruined situations and says to us, be sure to love each other through this. To the end, you're going to need each other. You're going to need that love desperately. And you will be ready, Peter. And all men will know that you are my disciple because you love one another as I have loved you. I think it's appropriate for us in our closing prayer to maybe just grab the hand of somebody beside you and hold on for dear life. I, I want to call out for us and ask the Lord on our behalf to do what only he can do, and that's put in our hearts this kind of love. Join with me in heart. 
Dear Lord, may the Lord make our love increase and overflow for each other and for everyone else, just as ours does for you. In Jesus' name, amen.